What is Demystifying Research? Hosted by me, Kelly Harris. And me, Catherine Hoyt. Demystifying Research is a space where we dialogue on training, careers, and all things research. Everything from is research right for me to thinking about applications, mentorship, which research degree is right for me, handling failure and rejection, CVs versus resumes, and funding. This is a space where we engage in discussions around the questions we all have or have had when considering a career in research and science. As clinician scientists, we seek to answer questions and address issues that aren't clearly addressed in more formal spaces, things that weren't addressed in our clinical training, questions that we may not know how or where to begin to seek answers. This is not a space only for scientists and researchers, but for anyone who may be interested in science and research. We're so glad you've joined us. Let's dive in. Dr. Skidmore, uh, we've heard a lot about what a wonderful mentor you are and the experiences that you've had with scientists and developing the future of the science in rehabilitation. So to get us started, would you mind giving us a little bit of an introduction about your area of research and your experience with mentorship? Of course. So my research focuses on how we can optimize interventions for people who have had changes in their cognition due to stroke or brain injury. And we've also studied similar questions in populations that have experienced changes in cognition due to a variety of other conditions like cancer, cardiac disease, cardiac arrest, and so forth. Um, and um, I'm particularly interested in how we can um, improve the design and delivery of interventions from the perspective of those who are receiving those interventions and, and benefiting from those interventions and, and using co-design approaches um, to optimize intervention design as well as implementation. And my experience with mentoring, um, I, um, I think my first experiences with mentoring are obviously very much shaped by the amazing mentors that I've had across my career. Um, I've been very fortunate to have uh, scientific mentors, professional mentors, personal mentors who've poured into me and helped me create a, a higher level of self-awareness, I hope, um, as well as clarity around goals and strategies to achieve those. But I also think those mentors have been really effective in, um, or really important in helping me shape my perspectives around mentoring and what are effective strategies and what are ineffective strategies in mentoring. Um, I've had the opportunity to work with uh, people uh, across various different uh, career paths, um, which is something that I really enjoy working with students, working with uh, faculty, working with practitioners and health system leaders and uh, national leaders in various roles. Um, and I think uh, those experiences, um, like any good mentoring experience, um, I think you get you get more out of mentoring than you pour into it usually um, because you have the opportunity to interact with people with such a breadth of skills and talents and they teach you as much as um, as the other way around. So uh, I think that broadly characterizes my experiences with mentoring. You mentioned that you that you had some really great mentors in your life, and it sounds like they were different types of mentors, perhaps yeah. that provided different types of experiences and skills. From that, what would you say are some of the key ingredients or or aspects that led to a successful relationship or stood out to you as really important? Yeah, the mentors that really, um, I think, spoke well to me were mentors who were humble, um, meaning that they had a 
good sense of their knowledge and their skill set, but uh, on on open perspective about what they could learn from me in that relationship. I think they were um, mentors who listened well and kind of helped shape my ideas rather than apply their ideas to move me forward. Um, I, I think that it looks a little bit different though in each relationship. And I think that, you know, a lot of times people talk about needing a mentor, like that's a single thing. I think peers can be mentors. I think people with certain content expertise can be a mentor in that content expertise or in a particular skill. And then there are other people that I think, you know, are, are better at looking at the large picture or trajectory of a person's development and helping you think through those trajectories without worrying too much about specific projects or specific skill development. But I think the common element of strong mentors in my life has been um, mentors that are that are humble, mentors that listen well, um, that help me define my goals and, and bring clarity about that and then help me align skills, strategies, resources to meet those needs. And those are things that I try to emulate in my relationships with, with um, trainees. I think it depends greatly, though, on what the goal of that relationship is and where it's going, how it, how it might manifest itself. Such a great point, I think, to think about like what the goal and the point of that mentored relationship is. Mm-hmm. And something I've noticed when talking to a lot of learners and trainees and at different levels in their career, perhaps pursuing an, a degree in occupational therapy or looking towards that research degree, um, a lot of people have asked questions like, who should I be asking to be a mentor? Or why why is mentorship so important? And um, And trying to keep chugging away by themselves. Why do you have any thoughts about why mentorship is so important, especially as you're working maybe perhaps towards a PhD or on a research project? Yeah, you know, it's a really important question. It's a question I get asked a lot. And um, I think um, I, I have the opportunity to walk this path with a lot of people, even if they're not considering, you know, working closely with me. I, I often get this question from people across the nation and across the world is they're looking to how do I get started? And somehow I've ended up on a, an email list of somebody you can, can reach out to. And it's a privilege that I I hope I fulfill well. But um, I think in research in particular, in PhD training in particular, to just focus in on that, it's a very different type of training than professional training. When you're training to become an occupational therapist, there's a core set of knowledge and a core set of skills. And, you know, the, the end point is that all graduates are leaving with that core set of knowledge or skills, hopefully expressed differently based on their different abilities and skills and talents, right? But there is a kind of a, a core set of knowledge. And so the type of training is a different type of structure. In PhD training, um, it's really much more focused on helping you become your own scientist. And that often means creating something new, somebody with a new um, path or a new direction in the focus of the work that is maybe being approached in a new way. And so uh, the standard approach to professional training doesn't work because it's it's much more of a master apprenticeship relationship often than it is um, being part of a large cohort with a smaller, you know, with a, a ratio of one instructor to 30, 50, 60 trainees, right? And so um, the see one, do one, show one or tell one a model is very important in PhD training. And, and I think we learn that best through apprenticing. Um, and I think the, the other thing that I would say is that 
um, good, strong mentorship should open up the doors to additional mentorship and PhD training. So, you know, when I take on a trainee in my PhD, in my PhD program in the lab that I manage, my, as I'm interviewing and identifying a trainee to work with, one of the things I'm thinking about is who are the other partners in this mentoring relationship that we need, right? Where's the content expertise that I don't have, or where's the methods expertise that I don't have, or who's had a professional trajectory or, or um, pathway that is different from mine? Because I think um, it's not only apprenticeship with one person, but it's often being exposed to multiple different paths so that you can take the pearls of wisdom from each of those and help create your own path, right? And so I think it's better done in this kind of smaller ratio of, you know, trainee to mentors, um, because you are creating something new that doesn't exist in a formula or in a curriculum per se, right? And so I think that's why it becomes really important. And for me, when people approach me and, and they're thinking about a PhD and they're thinking about where they want to study, I always tell them the first thing that you need to do is figure out what you're looking for in terms of the skill set. And then who are the people that have that skill set and can interface with you at a level that resonates with you? I think that's way more important than picking an institution or a particular program. I think it needs to anchor on the mentor rather than the reputation of a particular program or, or university. And many times when people reach out to me, they'll say, I'm really interested in a PhD and I'm really interested in something similar to what you're studying. But as I interview them, I become aware that what they really need is a mentor in a different university in a different program that hadn't even considered um, because of the, the particular direction they want to go. It doesn't, my strengths don't play to that, right? And so I think that's why mentoring is important. You're creating something unique, not um, broadly available if it's done well. And so who you're partnering with and who can help, you know, take you down the path and show you what you don't know, but also help you uncover your own skills to, to navigate that path. That's a, a very special relationship. What a beautiful way to phrase that, I think, like thinking about like who can help you navigate to the path that you yourself are trying to create. Um, for your future. And I don't know if you remember, but you actually helped me with that during my PhD training experience um, mm -hmm. and connecting me to Roxana Ben-Dixon. Uh, you know, I did, and really it was a period of self-growth for myself. Like what are my interests and where am I trying to go and who are the people that can help me get there? Of course, of course. And I think you don't really know that when you start down the path. So you do need a guide, but you need a guide who can, you know, kind of help set a direction and then help you adjust that direction as you go, right? Yeah, I just was thinking about, I guess, a piece, the kind of that same piece of what um, what you were mentioning that I think a lot of times we don't think about the kind of connection piece and the like, maybe I'm not the right mentor piece as part of really good mentorship. And so I just, I, I guess I just want to highlight that. I think that's so important that, you know, understanding that um I like I feel like I'm you know I'm a young mentor learning how to like improve my own mentorship skills and really thinking about thinking broadly outside of myself and how important that is for mentorship and for the people who are seeking that advice so I, I just thought that was lovely um a, a follow-up question is no go ahead I'm sorry you know I, I I think it's the same philosophy that we should use in our practice as occupational therapists speech language pathologists physical therapists you know, when you're working with a client, you're helping them uncover what their goals are, and then you're helping them uncover strategies to help them achieve their goals, right? So it's not really about us. 
It's about them and what their goals are. And I think, you know, once you can help someone codify that, figure out whether you're the best person or there's someone else to step in, you know, I think it's both responsible, but it's also very liberating, right? Um, to be a part of a larger community where we can share this and do this together, as opposed to feeling like the world lands on my shoulders for every little need. Um, and so I think it's important. Um, it's one of the, I think the lessons I learned very early on when I first started mentoring. Sorry, go on. <clears throat> I ask about um, like handling challenging situations or like what are some common challenges that you see mentees face mm -hmm. and how you help them kind of navigate those? Yeah, I mean, I think a universal challenge that we all face, that I faced, and that I think those that I work with face is that um, particularly in PhD training or research training, you're trying to figure out, you know, where where's your contribution going to be, right? And it's a bit of self-discovery as much as it is a professional discovery or a research discovery process, right? Often I watch, um, I went through this myself and I see trainees, you kind of go through this a little bit of identity crisis initially, right? As you're sorting that out. And then you go through this um, a bit of uh, maybe philosophical crisis as you're trying to figure out how to align what you're passionate about with how to approach it and what is it going to look like, right? And I think that's a metamorphosis that I've seen. I certainly went through myself and I've seen several others um, go through. And I think as mentors, it's really important for us to understand that that's part of the process. And um, I, 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 I often say when uh, people are interviewing with me to whether they're going to join the lab or not, um, I like to ask the question of how, how comfortable are you with ambiguity? How comfortable are you with, you know, three or four opportunities of, of trying something three or four different ways until we find the thing that works well? Because I think that um, that's part of informed consent when you're getting involved in a relationship like this, saying there is no roadmap. We're going to create a special roadmap for you and we're going to try a few things and see what works. We're going to live in a little bit of a gray space until, you know, the clarity emerges and it emerges at different points for different people in different ways. And, um, Rather than ignoring that or trying to prevent it, we're going to acknowledge it and create space for that right up front. Um, I think it's really important. Um, and so, you know, I think that's a common challenge that I think is universal and not unlike what you see with professionals that are further along in their career as they become faculty. And now they're having to go through that process again, but they're, it's because they're juggling multiple responsibilities and multiple demands on their time. Or, um, you know, as I'm mentoring department chairs now, the same kind of thing. It's really the same kind of uh, challenge. Um, and I think the goal is to say, this is going to happen. It's not a crisis. We're going to walk through it together. This is some tools we're going to use to talk about it, unpack it together. Um, but, you know, let's acknowledge it and work through it together rather than trying to prevent it's going to happen or give somebody an idea that these relationships need to be formulaic and linear. There are examples of mentors that, that mentor that way. And, and, and I think that's, that is one way of doing things. Um, it's not a way that works well for me. And I think it's probably the difference between helping someone really learn a niche set of skills versus really creating an independent scientist that can drive their own future. And I think there are two different two different things, and I'm more interested in the second. I really like thinking really, about it like really that. Love Sorry, it. go ahead, Kelly. No, I I was gonna say I really love that. I just think um, I guess I'm thinking about like I'm just thinking back to my days as a student and like the the kind of unnecessary pressure you feel yes. and how that must alleviate 
some of that on the front end because I think you come in thinking maybe, you have to know everything. I, I think that the well, people that are right. yeah, the people that are joined this this career path are high achievers that put a lot of pressure on themselves no matter what. I think maybe um, the pressure is still there, but it creates space to have the conversation. Might be the difference. Um, and, you know, and it gives me as the mentor an opportunity to start learning where the tells are so that when I see the anxiety go up, I can say, you remember that conversation we had a few years ago? And it's kind of a joke among the people in my my, my lab when um, a new student um, applies to the lab or a new trainee, we're now mentoring faculty. So it's the same thing. It's kind of a joke. The, the ones I always talk with folks, ask these questions and have them meet with other people in the lab to see if it's a fit because it really needs to be a fit. And I'm not, our group isn't going to be a fit for everybody and that's okay. Um, but we'll help you figure out where it is a fit and get you there, right? I think that's part of the, the journey. But um, it's kind of a joke among trainees, current and former, Well, they'll say, has she had the talk with you yet? You know, it's the talk. And, and this is what they're talking about is I feel like it's good informed consent to understand that mentoring relationships are dynamic. They don't follow a checklist, um, at least not the way I do it. And, and, you know, I really want to understand you, what your skills are, what's special about you, what you need uniquely bring, what life experience have you had that's going to influence the way you're going to approach your science. Let's enhance that. Let's not hide it. Right. And, and I think, um, yeah, so I don't know if I'm going to be honest with you. I think I still see people putting a lot of pressure on themselves, but I think it does give us the right to have the conversation when I see it happening, as opposed to ignoring it or sweeping under the rug or not acknowledging it altogether. Right? I think those are those are problems. I think, I think my training tell you the same. They put a lot I, of pressure on themselves. <laughs> I agree that like probably a lot of trainees pursuing a PhD are feeling a lot of pressure and putting it on themselves. Sure. But sometimes that does come from a mentor or externally too, or sometimes that relationship um, doesn't open up a space for having a dialogue about what's going on. Do you have any, have you ever observed anything like oh, that yes. or spoken with anybody? Do you have any oh, tips yes. or experienced it myself? Absolutely. I'll, yes. Yeah. To all of um, you know, I think that, I, like I said, I really benefited from some amazing mentors and the ones where, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're in a mentoring relationship and you're the, the trainee, you're, you're kind of evaluating, that's something I want to do. That's something I don't want to do. Right. And when I look at the things that I decided that I wanted to do, I, you know, I had some mentors in particular, one in particular who created the space for these conversations. Right. And when I found myself as a trainee in that conflict with another mentor while I was feeling under pressure or not understanding what they're asking of me or feeling that I was not meeting the standard, I had another person to go talk to in a thoughtful, professional way. It wasn't a, this person's making my life difficult, so help me fix it. It was, what's my role in this? This is what I'm trying to understand. These are the steps that I'm taking. Can you see another angle that I can take, right? And those mentors created the space for me to do that, which I really valued. And so that's, again, why I, when I'm building mentoring teams, I'm always building teams and not a single, like, I don't want to be the one-stop shop for a person. I'm not capable of meeting all the needs of any individual, right? Um, I want three or four partners to work with. And, you know, hopefully I pick good partners, but it is possible the nature of an interaction between one of those partners and a trainee can be strained. 
And so my job, if I'm really the one anchoring that team is to watch for it, acknowledge it, call it out, create space to talk about it, but not avoid those things because that is part of the life we are in, right? We live in a world where you're going to have some relationships that just meld and they're wonderful and they're enriching and they're engaging and you just want more of it. And then you're going to have some that are challenging. And I think to try to eliminate or remove the adversity is the wrong message. The goal is, all right, this is tough. Let's walk through it together and let's develop some skills on how to manage it. Now, obviously there does come a point sometimes in those relationships where the relationship needs to stop, right? And I've helped trainees navigate that as well. But you know, if we've done a good job up front, those are few and far between. And we've given people the skills to navigate it because, you know, Science is a team sport and you're going to have teammates sometimes that are difficult to work with and you do need to learn skills to manage it. It also helps you kind of determine how you're going to pick your teammates as you go forward, right? And if it's so carefully managed by a mentor who acts more like a puppet master than a facilitator, a partner, then, um, then, you know, trainees leave a lab where they're supported and they end up in a space where they don't have the skills to manage it. So, um, yes, you can have these situations. And, and I, I certainly have walked through this with several trainees where, you know, they're interacting with someone and it's just a tough experience. Um, my approach is to say, how are you feeling about that? What's working? What's not working? What do you want to do differently? Have you considered this approach? Um, and to walk through it rather than try to remove it, unless it's to the point where it's toxic, unhealthy, and not going to be advantageous for anybody. I don't know if that answers your question, Catherine. Yeah. I, you know, I just, I don't, I mean, even in clinical practice, we had teammates that were easier to work with than others, right? Um, even in the academic environment, where if you're training to be a scientist, it's likely you're also maybe an educator as well. And you're, you're going to encounter these things. These are not things that are going to be completely absent, right? So my approach is to recognize it and manage it um, if, if it can be managed. Does that help? Yeah, I, I think, think so. Sorry, I think go ahead. Also helping that trainee to own what is theirs to take on and what is not. Sometimes, and, and this is a generalization that may be unfair, but I've had more trainees that identify as female than, and, or, um, and so um, among my experiences, I have found that, you know, we women sometimes will perceive someone's putting pressure on us that might be more of our own doing than that of the other person. We read into conversations, we overinterpret in an email, we you know apply more, we add to the conversation. And so recognizing that and managing that is one thing versus when there really is a situation that is maybe um, uh, unhealthy, that, those are two different things. And recognizing and discerning the difference, I think that's part of my job is to help people sort that out so that they can stand on their own two feet as they move forward, right? And navigate that's that a way. really good point like over interpreting the email or over interpreting the interaction when you don't have all of the context yes and and i'm sensitive to it because i walked through it at one point in my life too right you know we, we tend to pay attention to the thing the lessons we've learned um and those are certainly lessons i needed to learn i, I feel like that's got to be also i'm just thinking about you know actually 
dominated by women, but then in academia, that is definitely not. Those yeah. are hard. I feel like hard kind of um, conditions to understand and navigate yeah. without without good mentorship that understands that. So that's so important. Um, and you were touching on this, but I I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about how you really encourage teens to kind of take that initiative, like be responsible for their own development, because I think that is kind of critical too. Like. You know, yeah. how do you own those things that you really, this is your career. And, you know, how, how do you encourage mentees to really take that ownership? You know, it really comes from my days as an occupational therapist in brain injury rehab. You know, it starts with that first conversation. Um, you know, in the clinical environment, we say, this is your life. What we accomplish together really needs to align with your goals and your values. So let's start by understanding what those are. And then how can we work together to help you achieve that. What's your role in this? What's my role in this? So I start there. And so from day one, uh, my trainees are managing our meetings with their own agendas. They bring the agenda. I help them structure it until they get an idea. But then once they understand, usually within a couple of weeks, they're running those meetings. They're driving those conversations. I have a list of you know things I want to make sure we address, but we I let them drive and then I'll ask a couple of probing questions. And so I start that day one to kind of really set the stage that this is you, you are in the driver's seat. My job is to help you navigate a little bit and maybe steer from time to time. Um, but, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's not my achievement that we're working towards here. It's yours. And so I start there. And then I, um, I, when um, I use, exemplars from the situations when they come up and they do come up. So it's not like you have to create these scenarios, right? Where, you know, there's a disappointing response to um, a, a paper that you submit for, for review, right? Or you get up to do a presentation or a hypothesis presentation and somebody really challenges you on your idea, right? Conflict and challenges emerge very quickly in this type of training, right? And so I use those opportunities to say, let's debrief that, you know, what are you feeling? How do you, you know, what's your role in this? What can you control? What is not yours? And how do you want to move forward? And I use those kind of opportunities. And frankly, I learned that from the masters that taught me. That's how they they managed me. You know, I was very fortunate, even though I've been in an OT program my entire academic career, to be mentored by psychiatrists and neurologists and epidemiologists. And there is a level of, um, and you too, I think, can speak to this as well from your own experiences. When you have a, a scientific discipline that is more mature, a lot of these things have already been conquered there. And so you, when you, we, in our, our scientific discipline, which is moving towards greater maturity, but has some room to grow, when we spend time in those other scientific cultures, these things end up not being the main fo focus of the conversation, right? And so by spending time in those other environments with these, you know, really masterful mentors, I learned that, you know, it's more about summary feedback and it's more about top down goals and it's more about strategy than it is about any given moment in time or any given experience. But you can use experiences as a way to work towards those long term strategies. And, you know, I think unpacking emotional response as well as cognitive strategy, as well as, you know, physical management of time, all of those things are really important in a mentoring relationship, learning all of those bits. You know, I think it's important that you, 
trainees see me take time off and prioritize my family and prioritize things that are personally important to me that fall outside of my workload. And um, I think I do that well sometimes. I do that poorly sometimes, but I try to say, look, I'm not modeling this and these are the reasons why right now, but this is where you can live. And this is a place we can help you live in, even if that's not my season at the moment, right? So I think it's just a matter of, um, you know, taking those challenging moments and not missing the opportunity to use them for personal development. But I think trainees get it very quickly if they're responsible they step up a bit more, you know, I gotta be, I can meet with Beth in a, in a week and I was supposed to have X, Y, Z done. I'm able to get this much done. I'll start there. And then we'll talk about the barriers that I'm having. And they start to own it a bit more because now I'm counting on them to kind of drive. Does that make sense? Yeah, I love that. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about just listening is, you know, earlier when we were talking, you talked about mentoring department chairs, right? And that, and just, I guess, thinking about like the evolution of that, that we think about mentorship as this kind of early career thing, mm -hmm. but it is so much more. I will tell yeah, you, so like, go ahead. Best advice I ever got um, from one of my scientific mentors who I keep referencing in my head as I'm talking to you. Um, when I became a department chair, I was done with my K award, had some R1, you know, I was moving forward, you know, maybe by most people's standards, I had arrived but obviously it's moving into a new role. And he said, so let's establish a mentoring team for you. And when I became, and that was a group that I was accountable for too, that I met with quarterly. Um, I think we called them the advisory committee, but it didn't matter. It was a couple of people who had walked the path that I was walking that could give me some counsel, um, you know, where I could take things without getting into details and say, you know, this is what I'm thinking. Is there another way I can look at this? Same kind of conversations you have early in your career, but maybe different topics or maybe more situationally challenging things because, you know, the consequences are bigger than a project or a research lab, right? Um, and when I became associate dean, I formed a new advisory committee. I have a group that I keep track of. I think you never outgrow, I hope I never outgrow uh, the need for mentoring. And, and the reason why is, you know, by meeting with people and reviewing what I'm doing, it creates my, keeps myself self-aware. Um, it helps me not get lost in the flow of things and really re-anchor on what are my strategic priorities and how are those influencing those around me. And if I ever did get to the point where I felt like I didn't need that, I think I would worry um, because I think there would be no checks or balances for me. And I, I thrive in that kind of structure. I need that. And I, if we're all going to be honest, we all probably do. I really like that thought process of thinking about mentoring as a really a lifelong thing. And I don't know that we are taught that in our professional careers. And it isn't until you get to this research world that you realize how wonderful it is to have a group of mentors and people to provide support in various different areas. I love that you mentioned a while ago, like about peer mentors and, you know, sponsors and like the different types of mentors that you can have and how that evolves over your career. Yeah. And I don't miss the opportunity, you know, in my lab, I even look to the lab group to mentor me, you know, so I never miss the opportunity. If we're each presenting work, I present my work for critique just as much as anybody else. Um, first of all, you know, trainees can see that I don't just wake up in the morning, you know, 
spew on paper and it comes out perfectly and therefore the work is done. They see me going through the process of writing and rewriting and vetting and revetting, right? So there's that. But you know, you know, the value of working in a team or working in a lab group with people from different generations and different life experiences and different family cultures and different perspectives is that they each have something to teach me if for no other reason than how to communicate to different audiences at minimum, let alone how to connect with those audiences, how to, you know, liaise with those audiences, how to partner with those audiences, right? So, you know, for me, mentoring is just really good relationships and, um, and recognizing that anyone that you come in contact with has something to teach you if you're willing to listen. That came from my Uber mentor, my mother, <laughs> who taught me that in a very yeah. early time. There's there's no one that I'll encounter in this life that doesn't have something to teach me. And um, my mom's been passed away now for 11 years, but she's very present in my life daily because of that important lesson that I learned as a very young child. That is a wonderful lesson to learn that we can all learn from each other and people have have value. Um, I think in every circle that we're in, I think at least I, I've had mentors in other fields outside of occupational therapy, and that's taught me a lot. And I think that's a really important point for anybody who's listening, that it can be a great additive value to have mentors outside of your field or in with different experiences, but at and any level in your personal life, I, you know, I have a couple of people that I check in with regularly that are not in healthcare or science or education. Um, but they're people that I have a personal connection with um, through my faith community. And they, you know, are safe places where I can go and say, I'm struggling with, and it gives me a different perspective. And, and actually some of those conversations have led to better science, directly influenced my science or directly influenced a relationship in my professional world, because they were able to help me see, you know, things I was stumbling on that, we're getting in the way, right? And that not always is going to happen in a professional relationship. Sometimes it will if we're really lucky, but not always. So, you know, recognizing that you can you can learn from various different venues and being, you know, a holistic, you know, whole person in all of that you do and learning from these different kinds of activities that you engage in and communities and people that you may engage with leads to better science and hopefully leads to better life fulfillment, right? So that's my story right now. Okay, I think it goes back to like one of your first points about key ingredients, talking about humility mm -hmm. um, and being humble. And then I just like recognizing that, yes, we're scientists, but like that doesn't live in a vacuum that, you know, mm -hmm. science exists in, in various spaces. And it, like, you know, we seek to have impact in these spaces, but then forget that like, we also can seek counsel outside of the science world for that same reason. So I don't, I love that. I think those two things to me are, I'm just thinking about them that, you know, it's that humility piece that, that helps us on, you know, think about our own growth in mentorship, um, in those relationships, but then also something that I'm working my way through right now. Um, last April, I attended our undergraduate honors college graduation ceremony when I had an undergraduate who was graduating. So I went to go to support her and the keynote was one of the graduates. So a, a college senior graduating who had, um, double majored in um, uh, political science and art, okay? And was getting ready to go on a Fulbright 
to study the role of art in conflict um, and was going to a nation that was in conflict to study this. And, you know, it's already I'm blown away. Right. And then her speech, she talks about the value of this concept they call slow looking in art and art appreciation. And so as an assignment, her freshman year, she had to go to the museum and look at a piece of art for 30 minutes, set a timer and just look at it and look at it. And the more you look, the deeper, the more things you see, the more it reveals itself. But 30 minutes is a long time. And then she used it as a metaphor for how we need to be studying societies and how we need to be engaging with societies and how we need to be engaging in conflict. And, um, and I thought incredibly relevant to the science that we do this idea of slow looking of, you know, we sometimes were so caught up in cranking out the papers and cranking out the data and cranking out the students and cranking out. But if we just take a pause and take a second look, a little bit longer look or sit in something for a little while, it reveals something new to us, right? I'm not there yet, guys. I'm working on it. <laughs> but this is an example where a college senior spoke straight to me and is challenging me to grow in a valuable way. And my lab will tell you, we've been talking about slow looking and I've tried it. I'll tell you 30 minutes is a long time. I think you got to work your way up to it. <laughs> but but the idea is important and, and it resonated with something one of my mentors told me he was taking an, uh, uh, I don't remember, it was like a history class or something for fun. And I was like, you really need another thing to do? And he's like, if I don't stretch my mind in new ways, I'm going to become very linear in my science. And so, you know, just you can learn from anybody, right? And and this young woman, I think hopefully will be one of our future world leaders. She was incredibly thoughtful and impressive. Um, but this idea of slow looking, you know, something we're we're talking about right now. What if we applied slow looking to our conversations right now? What if we applied it to how we think and build our research programs or educational programs? Where would we be? It's just an important question. I'm still discovering that right now. I, I'm excited to think yeah. about that a little bit. Try it. It's difficult, but it's yeah. And I, you know, in the back of my mind, I hear my mother saying, "Yes, Elizabeth, I've been telling you this for years. Um, it's just, you know, her." <laughs> My mom was always telling me slow down. So, you know, there's some, there's some continuity to that message in my life. <laughs> um, so just to maybe tie things all together or to, to wrap us up for anybody who's listening, not everybody is as fortunate to be in a mentored relationship that, um, that is all positive. And I know we've talked about this a little bit and not every space is as safe um, yes. for bringing for bringing questions or concerns to the front. So do you have any recommendations, strategies, or language that people could use for helping to navigate some of that relationship or to help develop a positive relationship if their mentor isn't in a place to, to help them in that uh, process? I would say you need to start by clarifying what you need from that relationship. What are the goals? And then you need to manage your expectations. What are the goals and, and what is it that can good that can occur here? And if you can find an intersection between those two things, then you focus in that intersection. If you cannot find an intersection between those two things, then I really think you need to find someone to help you navigate changing that relationship or exiting that relationship. 
Um, but I have been in mentored relationships where I would not say I felt safe um, or that I felt that there was a lot of room for me to explore. And yet there was still some value. And so once I got clarity about what do I need from this relationship, what's the goal and what's possible, and then manage the expectations to make it align, I could still find the pearls of wisdom and the value in that connection. Sometimes you can't do that if you're too close to it. So the, the, the thing that I think is really important is to find a trusted partner. And that partner needs to not only be someone that can be trusted and safe to walk through it with you, but someone that is not going to try to manage the situation for you, take the situation and try to, you know, control it. Um, or, you know, a trusted partner that's going to say, all right, how are you going to get through this and help you, you find your way through it. But I do, I do think it's really important always. And I'm really glad we're having the conversation now that if you are in a toxic relationship and you have taken good steps to try to find some good in it and you're not seeing it, get out. It's not worth it. It's not going to lead to what you need and it's not going to necessarily help that other individual either. And there are strategies to do that. Um, you know, uh, just about every PhD program has an ombudsperson or somebody that has been selected because they're specifically talented in doing this. Find out who that person is and, and create an alliance. Get clarity before you go in terms of, you know, what's mine to own here and what's not mine to own here and what am I seeking? And then have those conversations with some trusted partners. But, you know, not every relationship needs to be a match made you know, in paradise, it could be it's that, you know, really what you need to do is you need to learn this method and that's really all you need to learn. And you can make that work with this individual and you can learn what you need to learn. And then you can go on your way and say, thank you very much. Be grateful for it. Take the pearls and move on to the next thing. So, you know, looking for these um, deep connections, I've had them with a couple of people. And then I've had a lot of other productive connections. I don't know that we're deep or affirming, but valuable nonetheless. Um, and I think discerning between those is really important. So I don't, does that address the question, Kevin? Beautifully. Thank you so much. I, I think that's really helpful. And I, you know, I don't know how we're doing on time, but this is a really important piece of, of advice that I received um, early in my life that I bring out many times. You need to know what your compass points are. Where is your true north? What are you passionate about? What are you aiming for? And particularly among occupational therapy and speech language pathology and physical therapy um, professionals, we tend to have a lot of things that interest us, a lot of things that we're passionate about, but we need to do ourselves and others some service by focusing, number one. So find, figure out what your compass points are, write them down, reassess them. I do it quarterly because of the amount of change in my life, but maybe every six months or annually, depending on where you are and the amount of change that you're seeing in your, in your career and make that a big rock in your schedule. I schedule a three-day weekend once a quarter where I take a step back and I take a look at where am I spending my time? What are my goals? How do those two things align? Where's the mismatch and what adjustments do I need to make? Um, and that helps me. And if I'm so tired and so emotionally exhausted that I can't see it clear, I use that to just write, where's my joy? Where am I getting my joy? What's taking my joy? 
What do I need to do about it? Um, and so I do a little bit of introspection usually before I engage my trusted partners um, because then they have at least some point, if they know where my compass points are and I know where I, we at least have something we can build on. But if I'm, if I'm not able to do that, that's a little harder. And if I'm not able to do that, then I'm going to engage some counseling. And I've done it before. I think it's a really important thing. I, you know, my first experience with counseling, I was in the room, I caught myself saying something and I literally stopped and said, I had no idea that that was bothering me. Um, and I don't know that I ever would have gotten there if I had tried to do that with a family member or with a colleague or with a dear friend, because, you know, all of them are emotionally invested in me. And this person in the room, you know, he's just creating a space for me to talk. And so, you know, if you can't get to that point of clarity, then get get someone who can help you get there. And maybe not someone that's going to lay down in traffic for you, but someone who can help you be objective and look at things a little more objectively. That's what I would say. That was a jumble, but I think it's really important. I don't, yeah, I didn't I find it to be a jumble. I thought that was so helpful. Good advice. I feel like I've learned so much in the past yeah. 45 minutes. <laughs> I'm going to start scheduling quarterly check-ins for myself. I want that for yeah. me. Make sure you take your time off. Um, you know, when I, there have been seasons in my career where I've not been able to do that because I've signed up for some responsibility that's not made that permissible. But I've now positioned myself, I'm back in a position where I'm able to do that. And when I was not in those roles, I did do that. These were things that I understood that if I am rested, when I come back to work, I'm going to be more productive. I'm going to be a lot nicer to deal with. I'm going to, and I, and, 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 and here's the mentoring element. And I'm going to model that for others. If all people see me do is work myself into the ground, then they think that that's the model they have to meet. And I just decided I don't want to be that model. I don't want to perpetuate that problem. And I don't think it's necessary. I saw my, my mentor that I keep referring to. He took August off every year. He went away. He would call in once a week for meetings. They were scheduled in a half day. And then his team knew what to do while he was away. And he made that a priority every year. He was one of the most productive scientists I've ever known. And he had clarity when he was present, like he was able to meet us where we were at. And I'm confident because he took the time to rest. And so while I've not always modeled that, I am trying very hard to model that right now. I think that's a great perfect. lesson. Yeah, I was gonna say it's a perfect closing note. It's a great yeah. lesson. Good. Let's well, schedule some rest time. Yeah, schedule some rest time, figure out where they're going to be it's important. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, we are so excited to share this episode uh, with everybody and, uh, and, and all of the wonderful lessons that you've shared with us today. Thank you. And thanks for the opportunity. I wish you well. I hope this, uh, maybe there's a pearl in here that'll benefit somebody who's waiting to hear something. So that'll be good. Yeah, I think thank so. You. Thank you for joining us today. Check out our other episodes to hear more. You can find the first season on YouTube under Washington University Program and Occupational Therapies channel under the First Fridays for OT Research playlist. And more episodes of Demystifying Research linked under the Research tab on the Washington University OT webpage at ot.wustl.edu. That's ot.wustl.edu. Send us your ideas for future episodes at demystifyingresearch at wustl.edu.